Once again, thanks so much for being here with us as we continue to study the relationship between God's purpose and marriage. And just to remind you, and there may be a couple of y'all who have not been in here as we've gone through this. We felt the leading of the Spirit to leave the content of Matthew 19 where Jesus is asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And rather than telling them, well, you know, this is about divorce and that and this is what you should have done and so on, which is so often the way we begin a discussion concerning what marriage is about and how viable it is concerning the issues that would attack marriage and how we should respond. Rather than doing that as the basis, Jesus does what each one of us should do in any and every particular instance, question, or whatever in life. And that is to make sure that what we believe And how we are acting and how that is shared is based solidly upon the word of God. Rather than the precepts of men, the mores of the culture, etc., etc. And so when Jesus is asked something about the viability of marriage... He tells them, essentially, go back to the foundations. And if you have an understanding of God's purpose in marriage, then that understanding of God's purpose will inform and motivate and empower you to live as a married couple for the glory of God. Now, so we've taken this side leg, if you would, this dog leg to the right to talk about that biblical foundation as expressed in Genesis. But as a warning, and I've said this a couple of three times, it is imperative to remember this, that those of you in this room, for whatever reason, you're not married. This also applies to you. It applies to you because every one of us who are saved are brought into the kingdom of God to be God's image bearers. And so everything that we're talking about has application to us. But there's something about the marriage that God accentuates and focuses upon himself in a way And to an extent that is not there for a single person. And it doesn't mean that the singles are less important, less relevant, or anything like that. It just means that God chooses to declare himself in various ways, through various people, in the midst of various relationships... More distinctly in some areas in this relationship and then this relationship more distinctly. 
or less distinctly, etc. And it's God's choice. And so let's remember that, that what we're going through, all of it, is, if you would, an underpinning, a foundation of marriage. Now, it's taking me much longer than I thought it would, because I thought by now we would already be going back into Matthew. But every time I walk through one of these lessons and hopefully being led by the Spirit to put it together, and the next lesson will be this, I'm thinking... Nah, you know, I feel that this is the way the Lord needs to lead me this morning. So we're, we're still moving through it. So please, if you would, if you're, uh, not, if you're wondering why so much detail, just be patient. And let's learn together what God is giving us. And if we already know it, which most of us do, let's be encouraged to rehearse. Remembering the words of 2 Peter chapter 1, 11 and 12. I'm going to repeat and I'm going to continue to repeat, and I'm going to continue to repeat and repeat and repeat. It's good for you. You need it. Because when I'm gone, I wanted to come back to you just like that. Okay. How many of you, when you're raising your children, when, do they still do times tables? Do we still do that? We're not past that now? And so how did you learn your timetables? All you did is, teacher said, two times two is four, four times four is 12, and et cetera. <laughs> And all she did is say it once and went on to other things, right? How many know that the reason we know our times table, hopefully we know something about it, is through what word? Repetition. So let's join our hearts together this morning. Father, thank you so much. Father, we pray and we have confidence, not in ourselves, surely, but in the presence of your spirit to minister to us, to teach us, to encourage us, to correct us, to adjust us, to empower us. Father, our heart's desire, because it's your desire in us, that everything about us, individually and collectively, should be to the praise of the glory of your name. So, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for always, always caring for us and ministering to us. In Jesus' name, amen. One other thing, if you have missed one or two of these, please get a CD or go online and listen to them. I do encourage you to do that. So remember, last week we looked at several Old Testament passages that strongly suggest that this God... This one who is called Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, and in your Bible, the word L-O-R-D, all in caps, lowercase, I mean, uppercase L, lowercase R-O-R-D, that word is the word for Yahweh. That is the name of God. And we saw last week and the previous week that the peculiar, there is a peculiarness of, about this God. Because typically when you say a God, you mean a God who is a singularity within himself. Just a God. Who else? Well, there's just one God. He's one in, in himself. He's one alone. He's, he, you know, whatever. But you see, the peculiarity of our God, of God himself, is that he's not only one, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hero, Israel, Yahweh, I'll remember the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the one and only. 
But the word one there, you remember, echad, E-C-H-A-D, the word one there, means a compound plurality. It is a compound word, which means there is a gathering together of two or more in a unity that expressed as one. And so there's a difference about this God. He's not a singularity. He is one being of God. But in this one being of God, the Bible describes him with plural pronouns. And as we saw last week in various scriptures, which we only went over a couple, three. And I think the most significant one was the Isaiah one at the end. Do you remember? Do you remember what it was? Isaiah what? If I were to give you the pop test right now, which scripture did I share last week that has all three members of Godhead together? If we were to give you a pop test, how many of you would pass it right now? Uh, 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 uh. It's a good thing this ain't no class, kids. Isaiah 48, verses 12 to 16, and specifically verse 16. 48, 16 of Isaiah. Learn that verse. Know it. Know that verse. It's going to be on the test next week. Okay? And so, we saw that last week. In fact, it may be even in your notes. Is it in your notes? I'm not sure if you put it in there. And so, this means that there are three distinct divine figures that the Old Testament presents. Each one being Yahweh. Do you remember our discussion last week? How many of you were not here for that? Well, you see, please get the CDs. Because you need to make sure that you know this. Because when you're challenged by someone who doesn't believe this, you don't stand there and say, well, uh, 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 well, the New Testament shows this. and what. No, I want to know where it is in the Old Testament because the Old Testament is a foundation for the New. And if it isn't in the Old in some kind of a way, how can we say it's in the New as truth? Because the truth begins at the beginning of the Genesis 1-1. And so it's there. And so we saw that there are three distinct divine figures each one of whom is Yahweh each one of whom is Yahweh and the passage that showed this most distinctly is Isaiah 48 verse 16 I went 12 to 16 to just kind of flow it for you and so this means that In the Old Testament, this plurality within God, this compound unity within God, is a mystery, is shrouded. And it's not brought into the light of revelation until the incarnation in the New Testament. And so what we see in the Old Testament or glimpses, or references, or hints. But then what we see in the New Testament is the shining forth of the light of revelation from heaven, that now God is ready to bring into the fullness 
of what we can understand and receive of his own plurality. And that plurality is revealed in the incarnation of the eternal Son of God who takes to himself a human body and soul in the man Jesus Christ. And then we look at the life of Jesus, we begin to see a description, a manifestation, an explanation of this plurality which is in God. Why do I emphasize this again? Marriage is the clearest and most compelling revelation of who God is in himself. Marriage is the clearest and most compelling revelation of the plurality of our God. Of the distinct, unique, Kadesh holiness of our God. That's what this is. This, that's why this is so important. And so this plurality begins to be revealed in the birth of the Lord Jesus. Remember in Matthew 1, 18 to 21, allow me to read this. And if you have a Bible, you may want to open it and actually read it for yourself and underline in your Bible things that need to be underlined. This Bible is a workbook. So if you have a Bible that you do not want to underline in and write notes in, then read it, but then put it aside and get your other Bible out and make it a workbook. So here's the passage, Matthew 1, 18 to 21. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, you see the Spirit of Yahweh. Remember, the three persons, the three figures were of the Old Testament, in the Old Testament. Yahweh, the second one is what? The angel of Yahweh, and the third is the Spirit. Spirit of Yahweh. These are the three divine figures that are revealed in the Old Testament. Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh, and the spirit of Yahweh. We went through that. We gave scriptures for all of that. And now we have the Holy Spirit involved in something here. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that, look at this, look at these words, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. All of a sudden, here in this passage, you have two of these divine figures revealed. The Spirit of Yahweh And the Son of God, who is in the Old Testament, the angel of Yahweh, who is now being revealed as the Son of God, who is birthed, conceived in Mary, and who will be birthed by Mary as a human being. Now, how would this child save God's people from their sin? How will he do that? By forgiving their sin. How does he do it? By forgiving their sin. But the problem is, you see, what does it say? For he will save his people from their sin. How is he going to do that? By forgiving sin. So what, what does that mean when this child will save God's people from their sin? What is he saying? This is God being birthed among us. Why? 
Do you remember when Jesus was in the room and this paralytic was there? And he said to him, get up. You know, I'm sorry. He said to them, what? Your sins are forgiven. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on there. Only God can forgive sins. So what does Jesus say? Well, I I was just speaking figuratively. I'm I'm just, you know. uh, No, what does he say? So that you may know that the Son of Man, in other words, calling himself the Son of Man. In other words, that you may know that I have authority to forgive sin. What does he say to the man? Get up. Take up your pallet and walk. And what happened? The man got up. What does that say? Jesus is exercising the personal prerogative of God himself, which he shares with no other. So again, you begin to see, wait, this one is a divine one, as prophesied by the angel to Mary. By forgiving sin... Only God can forgive sin. Therefore, this means that this child is also God and is conceived by the Spirit. So already we see two persons of the Godhead. Many years later, the Trinity of God, the plurality of God, 30 years later, is made explicit at the baptism of Jesus in which each of the divine persons of Yahweh is involved. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Once again, you may want to open your Bible and underline this as proof texts from the New Testament that our God is a plurality and not a singularity, as the heretics tried to say. And when Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. So you have one of the persons of God. And behold, a voice from heaven. Now, who is speaking from heaven? This is God himself, if you would. Yahweh. And he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, the word son here doesn't mean, doesn't have anything to do, necessarily doesn't have anything to do with natural generation. The son, weos, you, O-U-I-S, in the Greek, has to do with relationship. It's a relational term. Yes, it does have something to do with begetting or physical generation, but the issue in that word is of a relationship. One who is connected relationally with another. So when God said, Israel is my son, what does that mean? That relationally God has drawn Israel to himself to walk in that peculiar and distinct relationship, allowing God as a father to his people and his people as his children who obey him and who walk with him in obedience. And so when the Father in heaven, when God in heaven says, this is my son, he is talking about that one with whom he has had fellowship for all eternity, 
who has now become a man and is now being baptized in the Jordan and is being authenticated and set forth in the mission that God has given him to save his people. Now, why the incarnation? What is the purpose of the incarnation? Now, by the way, do you know what the incarnation means? Enfleshed. When Jesus, sorry, when the eternal Son of God became a man. That's the word incarnation. That's what is meant by incarnate incarnation. When the eternal Son of God became a man. When he was conceived, that's when the incarnation originated. It began in the conception of the Son of God into the womb of Mary and came forth. He came forth in the birth as Jesus, the child, and lived his life. The incarnate Son of God. Why the incarnation? What is God's purpose in bringing forth his Son? What is God up to? Remember what we said. The purpose of God is stated where? In Genesis 1.26. And you must connect the incarnation to the fulfillment of Genesis 1.26. Dash 28. Jesus was born. The eternal son of God took to himself a human body and soul for one purpose. And that is to fulfill God's creative purpose. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now that's the bottom line or the kernel or the centerpiece for the purpose of God's son being birthed into the world. Out of that purpose comes he is going to save his people. He's going to give us the Holy Spirit. God is going to be, etc. You know, all of this other create the church and so on. But all of that comes all the way down and is funneled down to this one purpose which collects all the activities of God. All the activities of God in creation and following are to achieve this creative purpose of Genesis one twenty six. All the activities of God now come forth out of that because that's the work of God to bring about everything else that he wants to do. And so the purpose of the incarnation is to achieve or fulfill Genesis 1, 28. I'll put 28 in there because there's a purpose in there that we want to talk about in a few, in a few days, I'm sure. How? How does he do this? The divine son of God. Who is he in the Old Testament? The angel of Yahweh, the divine son of God, takes to himself a human body and soul in order to manifest God's triunity to his people in a man. The divine son of God takes to himself a body and soul. Why? In order to manifest the reality and manifest the outworking of what that reality looks like relationally within God. That's why he does this. So everything about Jesus' life, everything about his personhood, everything about his words, everything about his deeds, everything about Jesus is a living expression or the perfect imaging of God's triunity. Now, maybe some of us haven't thought this way before. 
Maybe some of us haven't connected the person and work of Jesus Christ to the eternal plurality of God, but we need to if we haven't. And so this is the heart, remember, of, of Jesus' prayer in John 17. Remember in John 17 how he begins his prayer. And in, he says this, now, Father, in verses 5 to 6, he says, Father, and you may turn there, John 17, 5 and 6. He says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world was. So first of all, he's identifying himself as a separate person within the Godhead who was also with God. Now, what did I just say? What verse did I just describe to you in a different way? In this prayer, Jesus is identifying himself with a person of the Godhead who also is God and identifying himself as one with this person, but distinct from this person. What verse do I have in mind? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God the Father, and the Word was Yahweh. Do you see that in this prayer right here? In 17.5, Jesus is praying what John says in the beginning of the gospel in John 1.1. Make sure we connect all these dots together. And this is, remember, his prayer before he goes into Gethsemane to pray that the cup possibly could be removed from him if his father's will. And so he's praying here and he says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Now, How does Jesus manifest the name of God? And when we say the name of God, what are we saying? Remember what the name meant. First of all, what is the name of God? Hmm? What is the name of God? Remember in Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Yahweh is my name, my name. Everlasting memorial name. Yahweh is my name. And the name of God today is still Yahweh. Although now he's also known as Father, Son, or Jesus, and Holy Spirit. And so, Jesus has been birthed into this world to perfectly image Yahweh. Perfectly image the plurality, the uniqueness, the authority, the supremacy, the one and onlyness of Yahweh. This is why he came. He came to do that so that God's purpose in creating humanity could be fulfilled. And so God's purpose for the creation of humanity is fulfilled in one man. The birth, the life of Jesus Christ.
So how does he do it? Two ways. He manifests the name of the Father. This unique God who is a plurality within himself. He manifests the name of the Father through his words. Through his words, Jesus explains his co-eternal and co-equal divine status with the Father as he is empowered by the Spirit. And that's important to get, especially in the Gospel of John. You see it most clearly. See, because we, we must make sure we understand that the words of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, that these are not just ethical, moral statements, which many of them are. But mostly, and most significantly, these words, especially as they relate to his relationship and fellowship with the Father, and as he expresses who he is to this world, and as he expresses to his disciples who they are to be to one another within that group, He is explaining his co-eternal, co-equal, divine status with God the Father. He is saying through these words, I am equal with the Father. I am eternal as the Father is. And yet I am a distinct figure or divine person from the Father. Remember John 14, 24. Jesus says, the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So he's speaking forth the word of God the Father that the Father gives to him by the Spirit. And so, again, God's triunity is on display. In fact, remember in John 5, 19, he says, I do nothing on my own. But what I hear from my father and what I see him doing, this is what I say and do. You remember that? And so everything about Jesus is the activity of the father's will being given to him by the spirit as he cooperates with the spirit. And so in the life of Jesus At every instant, you have all three persons of the Trinity being manifested simultaneously. Simultaneously. This is what it is to image God. This is what a marriage is to be doing. That the relationship between the husband and wife is to be so clearly and consistently and compellingly revealing the fellowship relationship of these three divine persons as the husband and wife relate to one another and live together as one. But also Jesus' words not only explain, but then his deeds Remember his deeds, walking on the water? Remember his deeds, opening blind eyes? Remember his deeds, raising the dead? 
Remember his deeds casting out demons. Do you remember his deeds? So in his words, he explains that he is a co-eternal, co-equal, divine son of God, one with the Father. But in the deeds, he demonstrates that. He demonstrates what he says through his deeds, that he is, in fact, the co-eternal, co-equal, divine son of the Father. And so he is demonstrating his co-eternal and co-equal status with the Father, again, being empowered by the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Luke, he says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God or by the hand of God. And so there's not a thing about Jesus' walk in this world that is not a clear demonstration of the Trinity. All three persons of God in this one man being manifested simultaneously in everything he does, everything he says. So remember in Philip in John 14, Jesus is saying, you know, I've shown you this and that. And Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you this long that you ask, show us the Father? If you have seen me, anyone who has seen me has what? Seen the Father. Anyone who has heard me has heard the Father. When you look at me, when you look at Jesus Christ, we are seeing the evidence of the Father as empowered by the Holy Spirit in this man Jesus in whom the Son of God is residing. So in the incarnation... God's purpose, as stated in Genesis one twenty six, is fulfilled in three divine, in the divine Son, who is the image of God, the image of the invisible God. So Jesus did not come to declare God's image; He is God's image in His declaring. We are made in the image of God. Colossians one fifteen says He is the image of the invisible God. So finally, as I said. God has his image bearer upon the earth. There is only one who could ever be the image of God. There's only one. Everyone else will be made in the image of God to be reflective of the image of God in humanity who is Jesus Christ. So then in his resurrection and exaltation... The risen and ruling divine heavenly man sends the spirit of Yahweh. Remember the spirit of Yahweh in the Old Testament. The spirit who very much applies the will of God into the lives of people. At the exaltation of Jesus, he sends the Holy Spirit to collect God's people into his kingdom and to confer upon them his royal status. By making them partakers of the divine nature. Now that's something, you know where that is in 2 Peter 1, 4. Now let's stop for a moment and think. Each one of us in this room who are saved, and hopefully everyone in here is a believer. Each one of us, when we were saved... And you need to know this, especially if you don't see yourself correctly in view of the work of God. Each one of us who are saved, I didn't say as long as you're trying your best, did I? I didn't say as long as you're paying your tithe, did I? 
I didn't say as long as you go to Sunday school. Well, I, I think I need to think that one out again. Now, that, that, we, we need a Okay. I didn't say anything other than one thing. Each one of us who have been saved, who have been born again, who've been forgiven, who've been adopted into the family of God. Once we are adopted into God's family, God immediately brings us into the very fellowship of these three divine persons. He brings us in. He brings us in, into himself. And for the first time and forever, and for the first time and forever, we have been made partakers, participants in this fellowship. Which is why Jesus can say, my peace I give to you. What peace? The peace that I have within the fellowship of God. The peace that exists among the three persons of the Trinity. My peace I give to you. Not as the world give, but my peace. And for the first time, we are beginning to experience God's unique kind of love. That does not exist anywhere to any degree at all under any circumstance outside of God. This is the unique kind of God's love, unique love of God. We have been made partakers of the divine community. So that now we, the community of the church, and especially the community of the husband and wife is to be reflective of the divine community that exists within the one being of Yahweh himself. I want you to dwell on that this week. 2 Peter 1.4. Actually, verse 3, it talks about how that happens and the result of it is the divine, uh, partakers of the uh, divine nature of God. And what is the divine nature of God? There are three in perfect harmony of fellowship, of relationship, three together. This is what we've been made a part of. And that divine fellowship, we are being conformed to the image of God day by day. Remember that Romans 8.29? Conformed to the image of God's Son day by day. And so the work of sanctification... Is God, the Holy Spirit's work in me and in you, causing us not to be more and more in the divine fellowship, partakers of the divine nature, because we are partakers. It's now bringing us the greater growing experience. We are now experiencing and are growing in the experience of this fellowship between or among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what we are experiencing in ourselves as God is transforming us and as God is joining this church or people of God and the husband and wife into a fellowship that is expressive of this fellowship uniquely expressed in divine presence in Yahweh himself. That's what our sanctification is all about. It's not making me better, Frank. I don't want to be made better. 
I want to be more and more a partaker, experiencing of and reflective of and enjoying and relishing in and bathing in this fellowship which is existing in God himself among these three persons of God. Our status as human beings, I'm going to say this and I hope you're going to be okay. Our status as, as, as saved human beings is right under the status of God. We have a higher status than the angels themselves who don't have this kind of privilege. Only we do. Because you see, we have been brought into Christ who is a member of the family of God. You see, this is, this is explained somewhat in Ephesians 1, 3, 14, and I'll go through this as quickly as possible. You may turn to 3.14 of Ephesians 1. You see, Paul explains our salvation as a Trinitarian work of God. And by the way, why is the devil trying to undermine the divinity of Christ? Because if Jesus isn't who he is, we ain't saved. We can only be saved by the Trinitarian work of God. Amen? You see... It's good to say Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But what happens among Christians too often is that we leaving out the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself would not be pleased with it. This is a Trinitarian work. And the sanctification is a Trinitarian work. And our security all the way to heaven is a what? A Trinitarian work. And forever we will be participants in, in the new heaven and earth, in the Trinity. Verses, these verses... Show the one being of God as unified, equal, and distinct work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verses 3 to 6. I'll just give you the synopsis. And it is good to go home and read this. And verses 3 to 6. God initiates our salvation. God the Father. He predestined us for adoption. He chose us in verse 4, and he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. So it is the will of God the Father. He is the one whose will is being given that we should be created and then saved after the fall. That's the will of God the Father. Secondly, the work of God the Son is to enact or redeem us so that God's will will be accomplished. So Jesus comes and purchases that salvation or makes that predestination possible and active for us in a reality at the cross. Amen? He redeems us and then the Holy Spirit applies our salvation. He is the one who takes the will of God the Father as enacted and purchased at the cross by God the Son, and he places that will in us when we are born again so that we are now partakers of the divine nature, so that we are now those who have been received the purpose of God as, re, as, as purchased by the Son and as applied by the Spirit. It is a Trinitarian work. Next week, I hope that we'll start looking at the Trinity in the activity of the fellowship and the relationship and the roles among the three persons of God. Thank you.